We acknowledge the Wajak people and the wider Noongar community on whose lands we sit today and pay respects to elders past, present and emerging. I dedicate any merit of this talk to all beings touched by war. May they benefit from our zazen and talking today. I'd like to thank Ross Bolita Roshi for inviting me to give a talk and for our conversations which bore many ideas and inspirations. What is war? What does it mean? Why is there war? Why do we fight each other? Why in the 21st century when we think so when we think we know so much are we still doing this? Is there anything we can do? What has war got to do with Zen Buddhism? What has it got to do with the Dharma? This topic is way too big. I don't know what I was thinking. Uh, we will attempt, I will attempt to just touch a few edges. I'm not an expert in any of what follows, so please make up your own minds and forgive me any errors. Please sit comfortably. Humans and chimpanzees share a common ancestor from which we split around six million years ago, a shared karmic history. Chimps' behaviour is not always peaceful. When two groups of males encounter each other on the edge of their territory, if the numbers on both sides are roughly even, there is shouting and screaming. But if one party heavily outnumbers the other, the stronger group will ruthlessly attack and kill. This is something that sounds hauntingly familiar. The Jebel Sahaba burial site in the Nile Valley is around 14,000 years old, dating from the beginning of the agricultural revolution. At this site, about 45% of the skeletons show signs of violent death. They are considered some of the earliest evidence of war, Humanity and civilization seem tied up with war. So, can we ignore this and pretend it has nothing to do with us today? Anthony Beaver, in his great book, The Second World War, says, Moral choice is the fundamental element in human drama because it lies at the very heart of humanity itself a statement which I think echoes Zen Buddhist ideas of engaged practice in the world. In Zen Buddhism and in our own lineage of the Diamond Sangha, there are painful links with war which are difficult to confront, but I think we can't wish them away. Brian Victoria's book Zen at War documents Japanese Buddhism's enthusiastic, enthusiastic support for the Japanese military in World War II while the 1999 tricycle article Yasutani Roshi, The Hardest Koan highlights in particular some of Yasutani Roshi's written words as being nationalistic, militaristic and anti-Semitic. This is hard to read. The article, which is available freely online, includes responses from several Western Dharma teachers, including Robert Aitken Roshi, 
whose response includes, I think it is salutary for my practice and that of my students to drop off innocent adulation of living Buddhas and realize that our teachers are human after all, vulnerable to the social and political compulsions of their times. And this, without forgetting, without forgetting all of this, we also do not forget that Yasutani Roshi is the same beloved teacher who said, the fundamental delusion of humanity is to suppose that I am in here and you are out there. Words that could be considered a summing up of the underlying cause of all the trouble that humanity finds itself in including violence and ultimately of war too. So I am grateful for his words. The Second World War, 60 million people killed, whole countries destroyed, the forced migration of huge numbers, the reshaping of international borders and relations, the eruption of civil wars as occupying forces departed, and the birthing of the Cold War. A war, though it is said to have ended in 1945, in many ways has not ended at all, is such a formidable presence in our own lives still today. Its repercussions are still being felt. Maybe this could be called our karmic entanglements, going back 50 years, going back hundreds of years, going back millions of years through our evolutionary ancestors. Speaking of karma, I would like to mention my own grandparents. Their stories are nothing particularly special, but being part of my family's story, I want to acknowledge them. My grandmother on my mum's side worked during the war in Townsville under US command as a censor, editing the correspondence coming in and out of Australia. She was awarded a commendation by her superior for the quality of her work. In 1942, my grandmother on my, on my dad's side was 13 and staying with an aunt in Sydney just near the harbour when three Japanese midget submarines attacked there. Grandma hid underneath a table while depth charges and explosions went off in the harbour. The submarines were destroyed and one Royal Australian Navy depot ship was sunk. 27 were killed on both sides, some of the Japanese by their own hands to avoid capture. Both of, my, both of my grandfathers volunteered. My dad's dad enlisted at 23. And after training, fought in Milne Bay, Milne Bay in Papua. Afterwards, he worked for the Port Operating Authority, loading and unloading ships in Darwin, Townsville and Port Moresby. His quarters were a trench, were a tent alongside a small trench. When the siren sounded, he jumped into his trench. 
When asked later on what was the war like, he would just say, bombs. He hated the army. I remember him as quiet, with big hands, working on the farm in the rough country around Tara in Queensland, or after the meal at the sink, washing up the dishes. My mum's dad was an enthusiastic member of the Citizen Military Force. He became a warrant officer second class. Near the end of the war, he and his men were sent to Bougainville Island, ordered to attack a heavily fortified position. All of Grandad's men were killed. Only himself and the youngest man in his group survived. Grandad and many others considered the whole entire action to be unnecessary, that it was just a vanity project for the generals. Uh, the Australian Department of Veterans Affairs website called the Anzac Portal argues that it was appropriate that the end of the war was not yet certain at that point. My strongest memories of Grandad were of him in his lush garden uh, in Southport, a suburb of the Gold Coast in Queensland, the black pipes of his reticulation for dozens of pot plants and plump strawberries glistening in the sunshine. If my grandparents had not survived that war, as 60 million people did not, then my parents and their combined six siblings would never have been born and I would not have been, nor my two sisters, or my sister's three kids, now growing up, soon to become teenagers themselves, would never have been born either. And that is just one family, especially important to me, because without them I wouldn't exist, but just one family amongst so many. How can we even understand what it means to kill a single human being? What does it mean for a human to kill another? The consequences and rippling effects of it. How can this even be contemplated or understood? Thich Nhat Hanh was born in Vietnam in 1926 and lived to see war come to his home. He resisted taking sides but tried to help his people for which in 1966 he was exiled from both North and South Vietnam. In his book, The Heart of the Buddha's Teaching, he writes, The first disciple I ordained was a monk named Thich Nhat Tri. Brother Nhat Tri went with Sister Chan Kong and me on many missions to rescue flood victims in central Vietnam and he spent many months in a poor hamlet because I had asked him to. We were setting up the School of Youth for Social Service. The communists said our Buddhist movement was pro-American, and the mass media said that we Buddhist monks were disguised communists trying to arrange a communist takeover. We were just trying to be ourselves, not aligned with any warring party. In 1967, Brother Natri and seven other social workers were kidnapped by a group on the extreme right, and he has not been heard of since then. One day, Natri was walking on the streets of Saigon 
when an American soldier standing on a military truck spit on his head. Brother Nut Tree came home and cried and cried. Being a young man, he was tempted to fight back. And so I held him in my arms for an hour in order to transform that feeling of being deeply hurt. I said, My child, you were not born to hold a gun. You were, not you were born to be a monk, and your power is the power of understanding and love. The American soldier considered you to be his enemy. That was a wrong perception of his. We need soldiers who can go to the front armed only with understanding and love. He stayed on with the School of Youth for Social Service. Then he was kidnapped and probably killed. Tiknat Tree is a big brother of the monks and nuns at Plum Village. His handwriting looked almost exactly like mine. And he wrote beautiful songs for buffalo boys to sing in the countryside. Estimates of total deaths in the Vietnam War for the 20 years 1954 to 1975 range from 1.5 million to 3.6 million deaths. In Australia, the war touched my parents' generation with conscription and protests. 521 Australian soldiers died there between 62 and 73, and 3,000 Australians were wounded. My mum was studying at university in Queensland. She had no close friends who were conscripted, but she knew an Air Force cadet who wanted to march against the war. But ASIO was actively investigating all anti-war efforts, and he feared protesting would hurt his chances of joining the Air Force. Mum marched in his place. My dad's high school had a compulsory cadets program. Rather than this melding him into a soldier, it taught him how to become a professional malingerer, his own words. He learned to use his ingrowing toenails as a perfect excuse to avoid the hikes. He was called up in the conscription birthday lottery of 1968, age 20. He did not support the war. Dad had his ingrowing toenails and a damaged back, and his mum added supporting evidence of childhood rheumatic fever. A sympathetic doctor declared him medically unfit. Dad also went to an anti-Vietnam protest march. As the march passed the first pub on the route, he rolled off for a beer and stayed. What is the Dharma of war? The Dharma of courage, of desperation, of greed, of theft, of hunger and starvation, of cruelty, of humans at the edge of what can be withstood and beyond it. And also too the Dharma of brotherhood, self-sacrifice and bravery against all odds. One such story is that of a Desmond Thomas Doss, who served in the US Army in World War II. He was a Seventh-day Adventist, and because of his beliefs, he refused to ever carry a weapon or to kill. 
but was determined to serve and to help. He served as a medic, was wounded four times, and saved the lives of between 50 and 100 men. He was the first conscientious objector to be awarded the Medal of Honour. I think there are stories like his on all sides and in all wars, though we may not always get to hear them. The Dharma of war is also the Dharma of a world turned upside down. Anthony Beaver in the Second World War tells this story from the end of the war about uh, Germany and France and people moving between. A German farmer's wife had been found in Paris having smuggled herself aboard a train bringing French deportees back from camps in Germany. It transpired that she had had an affair with a French prisoner of war assigned to their farm in Germany while her husband was on the Eastern Front. She had fallen so much in love with this enemy of her country that she had followed him to Paris, where she was picked up by the police. He goes on to say that this story raises so many questions. Would her difficult journey have been in vain even if she had not been picked up by the police? Had her lover given her the wrong address because he was already married? Had he returned home, as quite a few did, to find that his wife had had a baby in his absence by a German soldier? Who in war is on the side of right and who is wrong? Sometimes it might be obvious, but in learning a little about World War II, it doesn't seem such an easy question. One side does something terrible, and then the other side does something terrible too, in retribution or out of desperation, feeling that they have no other choice. Anthony Beaver, again, in the Second World War, tells the story of a young Korean soldier captured by Americans in June 1944. His name was Yang Kyung Jong. In 1938, at the age of 18, Yang had been forcibly conscripted by the Japanese into their Kwantung army in Manchuria. A year later, he was captured by the Red Army after the Battle of Kalingong and sent to a labour camp. The Soviet military authorities, at a moment of crisis in 1942, drafted him, along with thousands of others, other prisoners, into their forces. Then, early in 1943, he was taken prisoner by the German army at the Battle of Kharkov in Ukraine. In 1944, now in German uniform, he was sent to France to serve with an Ost battalion inland from Utah Beach. After time in a prison camp in Britain, he went to the United States where he said nothing of his past. He settled there and finally died in Illinois in 1992. Who is right and who is wrong? And can a war with all this madness ever be just? The doctrine of just war theory argues that it can, with ideas like proportionality, 
just means and just cause. This seems like pretty tricky territory. What should we do if our own family members and friends are truly in direct physical danger when there are no alternatives left? The just war theory holds that war is not always the worst option. In trying not to do harm and trying not to allow harm to be done, what should we do? And how can we ever deal with all this pain? Thich Nhat Hanh, in the heart of the Buddha's teaching, in this, the same chapter that I read from before, discusses Kshanti Paramita. He says, Kshanti is often translated as patience or forbearance, but I believe inclusiveness better conveys the Buddha's teaching. When we practice inclusiveness, we don't have to suffer or forbear, even when we have, have to embrace suffering and injustice. The other person says or does something that makes us angry. He inflicts on us some kind of injustice. But if our heart is large enough, we don't suffer. The Buddha offered this image. If you take a handful of salt and this is still Tignadhan, if you take a handful of salt and pour it into a small bowl of water, the water in the bowl will be too salty to drink. But if you pour the same amount of salt into a large river, people will still be able to drink the river's water. Because of its immensity, the river has the capacity to receive and transform. If your heart is large, if you have understanding and compassion, a word or deed will not have the power to make you suffer. To transform your suffering, your heart has to be as big as the ocean. Uh, just last week in The Guardian Online, I read two articles about Pavel Filatyev, an ex-Russian paratrooper who had just been fighting in Ukraine and is now speaking out against Russia. He, he talks of his disgust and confusion. I fought in Ukraine, and if I don't have the right to say no to war, why does someone else have the right to start the war? This is a vicious cycle, this is a vicious circle of some kind. We are all to blame, but we need to make the right conclusions and correct our mistakes. Where is the breadth of the Russian soul? Where did our nobility and spirituality disappear? Our ancestors shed so much of their own blood for the sake of freedom. It may not change anything, but I refuse to take part in this madness. Ethically, it would be easier if Ukraine attacked us, but the truth is that we invaded Ukraine and the Ukrainians did not invite us. They say that the heroism, heroism of some is the fault of others. It's the 21st century, we started this idiotic war, and once again we're calling on soldiers to carry out heroic deeds to sacrifice themselves. What's the problem? Are we not dying out as it is? 
People ask me why I didn't throw down my weapon. Well, I'm against this war, but I'm not a general, I'm not the defence minister, I'm not Putin. I don't know how to stop this. I wouldn't have changed anything to become a coward and throw down my weapon and abandon my comrades. So, <clears throat> so what can we do? I'm hoping this is I'm hoping this is an inspirational story. <clears throat> this is a story from Norman Fisher's "The World Could Be Otherwise," and it's a book about the imagination and Buddhist practice. So this is, this is Norman Fisher. Here's a story about how the imagination changes the world, even in the worst possible circumstances. It involves the French surrealist poet Robert Desnos. Desnos was Jewish. During World War II, he went underground to fight for the resistance. He was captured and sent to the concentration camps. One day, along with many other men, Desnos is crowded onto the back the bed of one of the trucks that transports prisoners from the barracks. The men fully understand where they are going. The trucks always leave the barracks full and return empty. Their destination is the gas chambers and the ovens. No one in the truck bed speaks. The mood is resigned, stricken, eyes lowered, faces grim. When the truck arrives, the prisoners slowly and silently descend, as if in a dream. The guards, normally full of jokes and banter, fall silent, unable to avoid catching, catching the prisoner's mood. But this almost religious silence is abruptly interrupted. One of the men in the line of prisoners suddenly, and with great animation, jumps up, pivots, grabs hold of the man behind him. Astonishingly, his nose almost touching the man's hand, his body coiled tight with energy, he begins to read the man's palm. I am so excited for you, he exclaims happily. You are going to live a very long life. You are going to have three children, a beautiful wife, wealth, so fantastic, so wonderful. His excitement is contagious. First one man, then another, in shock and bewilderment, thrusts out his hand. Each one receives the same sort of prediction. Long life, children, wealth, exciting career, beautiful surroundings, peace, happiness, success, joy unending. As Desnos reads palm after palm, the atmosphere of the moment drop by drop at first, and then, as if in a sudden tidal wave breaking all at once,
completely transforms. The prisoners are smiling, laughing, clapping one another on the back, their burden lifted, their reality transformed. Even more astonishingly, the guards are also affected. Like the prisoners, they had been living a dark spell in which the marching of men to slaughter was a normal and acceptable everyday occurrence. But now, with this absurd and unprecedented event, this sudden and gratuitous evocation of an alternate reality, the spell is broken. The guards are disoriented, confused. The reality they had been living a moment ago has been somehow suddenly cast into doubt, all but shattered. They are no longer sure what is real and what is not. Perhaps their better natures, long suppressed in an effort to confront to the Nazi madness that defined their world, long numb to the grief, the guilt, the horror, were stirred by Desnos' powerful commitment to his absurd, but perhaps not absurd, vision. Who knows? They are in any case so undone by the jolly scene in front of them that they no longer know what to do. They can't go through with the executions. So they march the prisoners back onto the truck bed and send them back to the barracks. Through this spontaneous exercise of imagination, precisely the sort of move Desnos constantly makes in his poetry, he and these men were saved from execution. Desnos survived the camps, but sadly did not survive the war. He died of typhus a few days after the liberation. I would like to end now with this quote um, by James Baldwin, told to the New York Times in 1979, um, which I read about in another Guardian online article. He's talking about writing, but I think it applies more widely. The bottom line is this. You write in order to change the world, knowing perfectly well that you probably can't. But also knowing that literature is indispensable to the world. In some way, your aspirations and concern for a single person, in fact, do begin to change the world. The world changes according to the way people see it. And if you alter even by a millimetre the way a person looks or people look at reality, then you can change it. Thank you for listening.